Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sex work, suicide, murder, mutilation, and necrophilia that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. In 1930s Japan, there were certain subjects you didn't discuss. Sex, lust, female desire. But when Abe Sada strangled her married lover in bed, those taboos became front-page news. It wasn't just the lurid details that fanned the scandalous flames. It was that the murderer was a woman willing to kill to get what she wanted. And it was that she never apologized. In short, she was a mystery no one ever quite understood. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we met Abe Sada, a former geisha and sex worker who began a passionate affair with a married man. Sada wanted him all to herself and decided that the only way to make that happen was to kill him and then kill herself. This week, we'll learn what Sada did to the body before fleeing the scene. We'll follow her as she evades authorities for two days until her fateful arrest. Then we'll hear about her sensational court case and her eventual fate. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IonNWSL.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On May 18, 1936, 32-year-old Abe Sada and her lover, 42-year-old Kichizo Ishida, rolled around in the sheets at Masaki, the tea house where the two lovers were staying. The two had been there on and off, drinking and making love. Their relationship was only about a month old, but they already felt an intense connection. At least Sada did. She was deeply in love with him. In fact, she was so in love with him that she wanted Ishida to be completely hers. But since he already had a wife, Sada decided the only solution was for both of them to die. That way, they could be together always. 
Before meeting Ishida at the inn, Sada bought a knife with the express purpose of using it to kill him. The weapon was out of sight, hidden away. She'd shown it to Ishida already, but he didn't think much of it. It was just a small carving knife after all. If anything, he expected her to use it in some erotic role play, not as a weapon. Now, exhausted from hours of making love, Ishida began to get sleepy. He jokingly told Sada not to strangle him, and then he dozed off. Sada intended to stab him, but her lover's last remark seems to have made an impression, so in the early morning hours of May 18th, she used the silk sash of her kimono to strangle him in his sleep. As Sada felt Ishida's body go limp, her hands began to tremble. The reality of what she had just done settled in. She scrambled off the bed and swiped a bottle of sake left on the nightstand, downing it to calm her nerves. And then a wave of clarity washed over her. She would say later that she was totally at ease, as though a heavy burden had been lifted from her shoulders. Relieved that she had done what she believed was necessary, Sada laid her head down on the pillow next to Ishida. She thought about the next step in her plan, killing herself. But at some point during those hours, Sada decided that she'd do it later, either by hanging herself or jumping off a cliff. She wasn't ready to do it now. Before we continue with Sada's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to researchers Catherine Van Warmer and Shuk Odia, murder-suicide cases almost always involve a gun because it's the easiest weapon to then turn on oneself. If the perpetrator chooses another method to kill their victim, like stabbing or strangling instead, then, quote, suicide becomes much more difficult. That's because these methods are significantly harder to do to oneself, both logistically and emotionally. So it's no real surprise that Sada decided to put off her suicide in the wake of strangling Ishida. Once she came to that decision, she knew she had to leave the scene. But first she wanted to take a part of Ishida with her. Sada pulled her knife out, but she didn't use it to stab him. Instead, she used it to mutilate his corpse by cutting off his penis and scrotum. According to Sada, she did this so she could keep a part of Ishida close to her to, quote, take the part of him that brought back the most vivid memories. After she was done, she carefully took her lover's genitals and wrapped them up in paper like a parcel. Then she took the knife and carved her name into his left arm. After she'd drawn blood, she used it to write out Sada Kichi Together on his left thigh and Sada Kichi Together Forever on the nearby futon. None of these actions were premeditated. She only decided to do them in the moment, but to Sada, these seemed like obvious and ordinary steps. She saw nothing wrong or unusual with mutilating her lover's body. After she was done, Sada got dressed in Ishida's undergarments and straightened up the room. Then, around 8 a.m., holding the parcel with Ishida's genitals, she left. 
Her first stop was a used clothing shop where she traded in her kimono for a new one. There, the store clerk noticed the package Sada was holding and offered to wrap it up with her purchases. As the woman reached out to take it, Sada yelled at her not to touch it. Then Sada quickly rushed out of the store. By now, she was concerned that the police may be after her, so she called Masaki to see if Ishida's body had been discovered. One of the maids answered and made no mention of anything unusual. Relieved, Sada told her she'd be back at noon and asked that Ishida not be disturbed before then. He was sleeping. The maid promised that wouldn't be a problem. With that handled, and knowing she still had some time before anyone was on her tail, Sada called Goro Omiya, her former lover and patron. She knew that as soon as news broke of what she'd done, he'd be looked at suspiciously for associating with her. She'd been his mistress for just over a year, and even now, he continued to support her financially. She told him that she needed to meet with him as soon as possible. A few hours later, Sada met up with Omiya. She immediately started to apologize. She was adamant that she had wronged him, but no matter how much he pressed, she wouldn't tell him what her apology was actually about. Without any other information, Omiya assumed that Sada had taken another lover and felt guilty for it. He insisted that it didn't matter. In fact, he still wanted to be with her. Her syphilis diagnosis earlier that year had scared him off, but now that his mistress sat across from him once again, he had a change of heart. Sada apparently agreed. After their meal, the two retired to a private room and had sex. Sada later said that she slept with Omiya only out of obligation. He had done so much for her, and this was essentially her parting gift. But regardless of her feelings for Omiya and his loyalty, she didn't give him any warning of what was about to become public. Later that afternoon at Masaki, a maid finally entered Sada and Ishida's room. It was long past noon when Sada said she'd be back, so the maid assumed it was fine to go about her rounds. But when she stepped inside, she was met with a horrific scene. Ishida strangled to death with the sash still around his neck and his body mutilated. One of the last things she saw before she ran out of the room was the blood-soaked bed. The police rushed to the scene and tried to keep things under control, but news quickly spread of the gruesome murder. And from the second the story hit the newspapers on May 19th, it was a sensation. Everyone wanted to hear about what happened at Masaki, as well as all about Abe Sada. Not only had she killed her lover, she'd mutilated his corpse and carved her name into his arm. With each leaked detail, the story only became more exciting. And even more importantly, everyone wanted to know where the murderess was. A massive search broke out for the missing woman, and as word of the case spread, an Abe Sada panic set in. People saw her everywhere. There were so many suspected sightings that the police were stretched thin, trying to track them all down. People were so desperate to get a look at Sada that there was nearly a stampede when one person claimed he'd spotted her. 
But the actual Sada was laying low. She was careful to avoid going anywhere that she'd gone before in case the police were waiting for her. She also changed kimonos again and began wearing glasses to alter her look. She decided she would go to the city of Osaka and jump off a cliff on Mount Ikoma. And she planned on taking Ishida's genitals with her to keep him close until the very end. But soon she realized making the trip to Osaka was too risky, so instead she used a pseudonym to secure a room at the Shinagawa Inn, where she could hide out. While Sada seemed to know that she was in trouble, she still didn't regret her actions. She felt no guilt. In fact, while at the inn, Sada treated herself to a massage and ordered a beer for herself. But when that didn't work, she turned her attention to finalizing her suicide plans. She felt that she had no choice now but to die at the inn. With her new plan figured out, she penned three goodbye letters. The first was to Omiya. She thanked him for everything he'd done for her and apologized for any pain she might have caused him. The second was to a friend, who she thanked for her support and help over the years. And the third was to Ishida. She wrote him a short message. It read, "'You whom I love most, even when dead, you are mine. I'll be with you soon.'" She sealed the letter and addressed the envelope, "'To you who are mine.'" But Sada never had a chance to go through with her plan. On the evening of May 19th, after writing her letters, she drank three beers and fell asleep. She was so exhausted, she slept all through the night and into the next afternoon. Meanwhile, authorities were closing in on her. Police detective Ando Matsukichi had been investigating all the inns in Tokyo, figuring that Sada was likely hiding out in one of them. He arrived at the Shinagawa Inn on the afternoon of May 20th and asked to look over the registration book. He quickly noticed a gender-neutral name, Oada Now. Intrigued, he asked the maid to show him to the room so he could confirm whether the occupant was a man or a woman. The maid led Matsukichi up to the room. He peeked into the window and saw the occupant sleeping inside. He thought it was suspicious that someone was sleeping in the middle of the afternoon, so he knocked loudly on the door. Inside the room, Sada startled awake and saw the figures outside her window. With a sinking realization, she knew that she had been found. But instead of trying to flee, 32-year-old Sada collected herself and then answered the door. With little preamble, she reportedly said, I'm the Abe Sada you are looking for. According to the maid who accompanied Matsukichi, Sada then changed into different clothes and did her makeup. Then, when she was ready with Ishida's wrapped genitals in hand, they led her away from the inn and to police headquarters. By then, Sada had a smile on her face and a whole new plan in mind. She may have gotten caught, but she had every intention of being reunited with Ishida very soon. Up next, Sada tells the police everything. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast. They say there's someone for everyone. 
a soul to share your secrets with, a companion to grow old with, a conspirator to commit crimes with? Starting this February on Spotify, learn about the lethal and legendary lovers who fought the law in the ParCast Limited series, Criminal Couples. If you've ever referred to your best friend or beloved as your partner in crime, this exclusive series is for you. Beginning February 1st, join me for a collection of unlawful love stories from shows across the ParCast network. Discover the extreme beliefs of cult leaders Tony and Susan Alamo, enter Fred and Rose West's real-life house of horrors, and experience the madness and motives of the San Francisco witch killers fall for the most famous and feared pairs in history in the Spotify original from ParCast, Criminal Couples. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify. Now back to the story. On May 18, 1936, 32-year-old Abe Sada murdered her lover, mutilated his corpse, and fled the scene. For two days, she managed to evade the authorities, until May 20th, when detectives found her hiding out at a Tokyo Inn and arrested her. The police took her to the Metropolitan Police Headquarters, but they weren't in any serious rush to interrogate her. Instead, they kept her in a holding cell while they gathered evidence. Sada mostly slept for the better part of three days. When she was awake, she wasn't too happy with her new surroundings, though she was still allowed some amenities, like sweets and flowers to decorate her cell. On one of those three nights, Sada talked through her cell bars to the guard on duty. She told him that she hoped they executed her, and that it would happen quickly. It would be better that way. This was partly why Sada had been so cooperative when the police showed up at her room at the inn. She anticipated the death penalty, welcomed it even. She hadn't been able to escape Tokyo and follow through with her suicide plan, but now she figured she could just let the government handle things. Soon she'd be dead and reunited with her lover. Finally, the detectives brought Sada in for her first round of interrogations. They were immediately thrown off. They were expecting a demure, regretful woman, someone who even claimed insanity. But instead, Sada informed them that she didn't regret a thing. She had no intention of claiming she was innocent. That would go against her one goal, to be found guilty and given the death penalty, so that she could see her initial plan through. So she spilled everything her thoughts, her motivations, her methods. She explained in detail why she had killed Ishida. As she told the police, it was to make sure that no other woman would ever touch him again. But even after revealing her motive, the police still couldn't understand it. To them, it didn't seem to make sense for a woman to commit premeditated murder. It left them speechless. Now, if she'd acted in a moment of passion, that would make sense. 
But Sada refused to allow them to manipulate her words. She hadn't killed for revenge or jealousy, nor was she insane. And she hadn't done those things to Ishida's corpse to mutilate him. She'd simply taken his genitals to remain close to him until they could be reunited. And she maintained that the carved and bloody writing on his body was a sort of final love letter. To Sada, these were all gestures of love, not cruelty. Still, she knew how it looked to the outside, which is why she expected she'd get the death penalty. Between the mutilation and the prominence of the case, the government would likely want to make an example out of her. And this case was prominent. The details were so wild that people couldn't help but be fascinated. Not only was this a gory murder, but the perpetrator was a petite, beautiful young woman who had once been a geisha. It had all the marks of a sensational story. And in 1936, Japan was in the throes of serious political turmoil. Any distraction was welcome. So as the case grew in popularity, rumors and wild suggestions about Sada's background flew. Reporters dug into her childhood, searching for dirt and trying to find an explanation for how a woman could do something so terrible. The police did their part as well. They interviewed whoever they could find who had known Sada throughout her life. Until finally on June 10, 1936, about three weeks after the murder, detectives decided they had enough to indict her for murder and mutilation. Newspapers blasted the indictment across the country. Some even quoted Sada, who said that she didn't believe she had done anything wrong, and her fervent wish for execution. According to law scholar John H. Bloom, in rare instances, criminals actually factor the death penalty into their murder-suicide plots. In other words, they kill in order to be executed. According to Bloom, being indirect or passive about the termination of one's existence is still acting suicidal. Initially, Sada intended to carry out both acts herself, but the discovery of Ishida's body threw a wrench in her plans, so she did the next best thing. She basically volunteered for the death penalty. She refused to tell the police what they wanted to hear and didn't fight the charges. By telling the truth and then doing nothing, she was helping along the process of getting to her death. For six months, the prosecution assembled its case against her while Sada waited patiently in a cell. Until finally, the first day of the trial arrived. On November 25, 1936, Sada was escorted into the courtroom. In Japan, trial by jury is not an option in criminal cases. For Sada's trial, three judges, led by Judge Hosoya, would hear the case and decide her fate. But Sada wasn't worried. She expected only one outcome. To hasten things along, she even tried to get rid of her attorney and do away with any kind of defense. But for one reason or another, when she got to trial, she had counsel. It seemed that no one would allow her to make such a decision for herself. During the trial, the prosecution's argument was pretty straightforward, or at least it should have been. After all, they had a perpetrator who had confessed to everything 
But the judges and even Sada's own lawyer couldn't fathom how a woman could do what she did and be of sound mind. The prosecution argued that Sada had committed premeditated murder in a clear, conscious, and sane state. Even though Sada specifically told her attorney that she was guilty and didn't want a defense, he claimed Sada was indeed insane. In fact, the physician who examined Sada concluded that she showed characteristics of hysteria, a now antiquated and made-up diagnosis often given to any woman who acted outside of social norms. The concept of hysteria stretches back to antiquity and was mostly attributed to the presence of a uterus. Hosoya quoted the physician's report to justify his and the other judges' belief that Sada had been temporarily overcome by insanity, likely caused by her own sexual organs. That Sada had killed Ishida in a moment of womanly mental weakness. For the sake of the country, both sides wanted to make it clear that Sada was an exception to the rule and that no woman was really and truly capable of cold-blooded murder. The lucky few who'd gotten a seat in the courtroom listened with rapt attention. This was better than any newspaper article. They were hearing details that had never made it into print. But Judge Hosoya and the other judges had a problem. At the time, Japan had strict censorship laws that forbade any public discussion of sex. But the judges were required by law to, quote, discuss the specifics of the case in a setting open to the press and observers, which meant they had to be very careful. Hosoya tried to use euphemisms for certain words like extremity instead of penis, but still everyone knew what was being talked about. He took note of every giggle and hushed whisper, and he worried his courtroom was being made into a joke. So when it came time to discuss the details of the murder itself, he made the decision to clear the courtroom for a closed-door session. He argued that the crime's gruesome nature was reason enough to bar the public from listening in. Despite all the hullabaloo, Sada's trial was really just a formality. No one, not even Sada, denied her guilt. So no one was surprised when the panel of judges found her guilty of murder and mutilation. What everyone really wanted to know was what her sentence would be. On December 8, 1936, Sada returned to the courtroom for sentencing and made a statement to the court. It was her final attempt to make everyone understand her. She told them, The thing I regret most about this incident is that I have come to be misunderstood as some kind of sexual pervert. There had never been a man in my life like Ishida. There were men I liked and with whom I slept without accepting money, but none made me feel the way I did toward him. After that, Sada sat back down in her seat, resigned to her fate. Even when faced with prison or possibly death, Sada refused to show any remorse. Given her crimes, some members of the public called for the death penalty. Others argued for leniency. In their eyes, she was a woman and therefore couldn't really be held accountable. In the end, the prosecution only asked for 10 years. 
Sada was shocked. That wasn't what she wanted at all, and she would have never imagined such a light sentence for a crime like hers. Now her only hope was that the judges might overrule the prosecution and give her the harsh sentence she'd been counting on. But that wasn't to be. On December 21, 1936, the three judges agreed that Sada wouldn't get 10 years. She'd get only six. All three believed that Sada had suffered from some sort of mental weakness at the time of the crime and could not be held fully responsible. Interestingly, Judge Hosoya also found Ishida somewhat at fault. In a strange show of victim-blaming, Hosoya argued that Ishida should have known better than to joke with Sada about being strangled. He believed that Ishida had played right into Sada's hands and that he should have done something to stop her earlier. But regardless, Sada wasn't pleased. She'd insisted that she was guilty, that she deserved the death penalty. And yet, the court decided that she was little more than a hysterical woman who couldn't be held responsible for her actions. She was going to prison. And then, in six short years, she would be free. It was the worst possible outcome. Up next, Sada's life behind bars and the legacy of her crime. Now, back to the story. After arresting Abe Sada in May 1936, police interrogated the 32-year-old sex worker for four weeks. Sada eventually stood trial and was found guilty, which everyone expected. But she was handed an extremely lenient sentence, only six years in jail. Sada was devastated. In December 1936, she was sent to Tochigi Women's Penitentiary, where she was stripped of her name. From that point on, she was only prisoner number 11. At first, Sada was miserable. She had none of the luxuries she was accustomed to as a well-paid sex worker and mistress. Once again, she was back in a place with strict rules. She felt trapped. But eventually, she came to accept her sentence, and she stopped thinking about suicide. At some point early in her prison sentence, she decided that she would actually continue her life as, quote, a living memorial to Ishida. With this new epiphany came a swell of relief and happiness. It was such a severe shift that even the guards took notice of her new attitude. But it didn't last for long. On the anniversary of Ishida's murder, a Buddhist nun visited 33-year-old Sada. As she performed a service in Ishida's memory, the nun implored Sada to take her faith more seriously. After the woman left, Sada went into an emotional spiral. For days on end, she cried in her cell, refused food, and could barely manage the daily labor required of the prisoners. Thoughts of suicide returned. She started to fantasize about ways to end her life so she could be with her lover. As the summer went on, Sada's attitude worsened. She alternated between bouts of tears and fits of rage. One time, she got so angry, she cut off most of her hair. Another time, during inspection rounds, Sada took a bucket of dirty water and poured it over a guard. 
Sada said the guard hadn't done anything to draw her ire. Sada, quote, simply wanted to do something bad. It was an impulsive act meant to draw attention. In a study by researcher Jesse Mayers and his colleagues, he found that even temporary stints in prison can have serious effects on people's personalities. In as short as three months, prisoners became more impulsive and their attentional control weakened. Sada may have had some rebellious teenage years, but for most of her adult life, she'd been a careful and controlled woman. In prison, all of that self-discipline deteriorated. She was reduced to her most immature self, acting out because she felt helpless and had no other options. But the prison guards didn't tolerate this kind of behavior. So, Sada was thrown into solitary confinement, where guards put restraints on her wrists and tied them behind her back. They left her like that for a day. Then, the Buddhist nun returned to see her. This time, Sada was much more receptive to what the woman had to say. The nun persuaded her to see the error of her ways and embrace religion. Everything changed after that meeting. For the next three years, Sada practiced Buddhism. She didn't cause any more trouble, and she never thought about killing herself again. Then, in May 1941, nearly five years to the day of Ishida's murder, something completely unexpected happened. A guard came to Sada's cell and told her to collect her things. She was to be released. Sada's sentence had been commuted one year early. This was due to a large round of pardons that came down as part of Japan's mythical founding celebration just the November before. Sada followed the guard, absolutely elated. This wasn't the same Sada who had so desperately wanted to end her life to be with a lover. Now she was a woman who desired to live and who was excited about the future. The guard brought Sada to a small room where her older sister waited for her. She helped Sada out of her prison attire and into a kimono. Sada ran her hands along the silk fabric. She could barely remember the last time she'd touched silk. She could almost cry at how soft it was. When Sada left the prison that night, she was informed that the police had set up an identity protection program for her. She was simply too well-known. If she went back into the world using her real name, she would never have a moment of privacy, let alone get a job and be a functioning member of society. So they assigned her a pseudonym and gave her the proper identification to enable a fresh start. From then on, she would be Yoshi Masako. But even with the police's help, Sada struggled to remain anonymous. After leaving prison, she got a job as a maid for a wealthy family, but somehow they discovered her real identity and fired her right away. They couldn't have someone like her in their house. So Sada was back to square one. Unfortunately, Sada's skills were very specific to one industry sex work, but she was determined that that was behind her now. She tried hard to find other work, but no one wanted a single woman with no education or work history. 
Then, Sada met a man who she only ever referenced to as Y. He was a serious businessman, and he asked her to be his mistress. Sada hesitated. She didn't want to fall back into this line of work. She thought about what the Buddhist nun might think. Surely, she wouldn't approve. Perhaps more importantly, it felt like a total betrayal of Ishida for her to be with another man. But Sada didn't have any other options, so she agreed. Sada planned on keeping a low profile in Tokyo, but Japan was in the middle of a war, and that made things difficult. At one point, the city was evacuated, and both Sada and Y were sent to live in the countryside. In her teenage years, Sada had hated the countryside, but now, as a woman in her late 30s, she loved it. She found it peaceful and simple. She worked in the fields, dressed in casual clothes, and spent her days befriending the country folk. To her relief, she was finally anonymous. If she'd had it her way, she would have stayed there for the rest of her days. But why wanted to move back to Tokyo? And as soon as it was allowed, they did. As Sada sat on the train and watched the countryside fade into the distance, all she could think was that she was making a big mistake. It turned out Sada was right. Soon after returning to Tokyo with Y and then relocating with him to a small village, his family discovered her true identity. They pressured Y to end things with Sada for the sake of their family's reputation. And sure enough, he did. It just wasn't worth the risk to be with her. Soon after the breakup, Sada began using her real name again. Her pseudonym wasn't doing much to protect her. It seemed that no matter what, the truth always caught up with her. And if that was the case, then Sada at least wanted the power to defend her name. She started fighting back. In the years since her arrest, many books and articles had come out about her, which she felt didn't portray her accurately. So she even sued a writer for libel and slander. She made a little money off of the settlement, but not enough to live on. Eventually, she decided to go back to waitressing. By 1952, 48-year-old Sada was working in a Tokyo restaurant bar called Hoshikikusui. Her employers were well aware of who she was and even encouraged Sada to embrace her name. Her presence drew in large crowds of new customers, all of whom wanted to meet the dangerous Abe Sada. At Hoshikikusui, Sada learned how to turn her name from a liability to an asset. And in 1967, she'd earned enough money to open her own restaurant called Wakatake. For nearly three years, the restaurant was a great success. Finally, Sada was doing what Omiya had always envisioned for her, and she absolutely loved it. But then, Sada met a young man who convinced her to go into business with him. Unfortunately, he was just using her. He stole her savings, leaving Sada with absolutely nothing. So in 1970, only three years after its opening, she had to close Wakatake. Six months after that, Sada disappeared, never to be seen again. 
plenty of people tried to find out what happened to her, reporters were determined to get this final scoop. Some thought she died from illness, others that she became a Buddhist nun. There was also speculation that Sada finally completed suicide, just as she had promised all those years ago. But try as they might, the reporters' leads always hit a dead end. No one ever found out what actually happened to Sada. And that was probably just how she wanted it. The public had never been able to accept or understand her the way she had hoped anyway. So, for the final stretch of her life, Sada stopped trying to explain herself and just let go. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Abe Sada, amongst the many sources we used, we found Geisha Harlot Strangler Star by William Johnston, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Joanna Philbin and Joel Callen, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hi, it's Vanessa again. Before you go, don't forget to check out the new ParCast limited series, Criminal Couples. From apocalyptic cult leaders to bank-robbing bandits to married mafiosos, these couples give new meaning to Till Death Do Us Part. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify.